0: Welcome to the first part of a two-part Best of Bucket with Phil Kogan podcast. Over the past year, Bucket has been a place for mavericks, innovators, and disruptors. Those who have swerved off the predictable road and who epitomize what it means to tick it before you kick it. In this episode, we're gonna take a look back at those who have turned obstacles into opportunities, defied insurmountable odds, broken stereotypes, achieved seemingly impossible physical feats, and even cheated death. We're also going to hear some words of wisdom, as well as some tips from people who have taken life by the horns and who apply that bucket mentality to any situation. I knew I couldn't go back. Your you just put it out there. She said, "You've got less than a year to live." This
1: dug
2: even deeper.
0: Bucket is the residue of desire. Nobody else was doing it, so I couldn't.
2: That I. was the turning point.
0: A number of people that I spoke to this year on the podcast went through a near-death experience. One of those people was Jerry Leninger. Jerry is a retired captain in the United States Navy Medical Corps who spent 143 days in space aboard the Russian space station Mir. And it was while he was on a mission with NASA that the Mir space station, which was only intended to fly for three to five years, was then in its 13th year and having chronic system failures. It was during one of these that Jerry, NASA astronaut, husband and father of two, accepted that his life was over. So all hell is breaking loose, and you're up in, in space. Take us into that moment,
2: Jerry. You're how f- far above the Earth at this point? We're about 250 miles above the Earth, and uh, everything's going pretty well. Uh, sucking down some dehydrated borscht to tell my crewmates I have some work to do. Uh, fly off to a U.S. equip module, pretty good equipment on there. Uh, that whole space station, you know, is about 13 years old, designed life of three to five years, so it's a failing space station. Uh, but I get in the newer U.S. module, I'm up on the laptop recording some stuff, and then I hear the old blang, 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 you know, master alarm going off again. You know, a master alarm means you're having a bad day in space. I've been up there for about a month, and I've been hearing master alarms two or three a day, and so it's kind of funny, my pulse is not racing anything else, I'm just c- kind of calmly looking at the computer saying, okay, it's still working, haven't lost power, Almost subconsciously look around, walls aren't tumbling, I think, okay, we haven't lost attitude control, must be the carbon dioxide scrubber, you know, just very, very, very relaxed. Uh, enter the data, push off, go to turn the corner uh, to look at the caution and warning panel. Uh, but before I can get there, Vasily Sobleyev comes flying around the corner fast. And I yell out, Seriosny, and he says, da, ochin, bajar. I asked, is it serious? He said, yes, very, fire. Um, look down the length of the module sort of like a school bus down at the end of the module coming out of a uh, solid fueled oxygen canister supposed to be just an exothermic reaction no flame involved but instead we've got a flame coming out two or three feet in length blowtorch like intensity sparks flying off the end of it Uh, looks like someone lit a box about a hundred sparklers just you know sparks flying Uh, look down at the hull of mirror the hull of made of aluminum Protection from the vacuum of space—about that thick—quickly realize that blowtorch points down. We're gonna have rapid decompression as it pierces the hull, uh, quick suffocation, and in that moment, uh, you say, you know, this is it. Um, we either do everything right, or we're not getting out of this situation. I can feel my adrenaline mm-hmm. pumping just hearing that story because I'm figuring that fire in space is about the worst thing you can face there's actually three emergencies that we train for immediate response and fires you know one of those three rapid decompressions the other one as I mentioned if that fire points down we've got fire and rapid decompression and the third major emergency you worry about in space is toxicity and of course we're burning uh, literally melting metal mean, I'm seeing sparks flying off the end and molten metal just being splattered against the far bulkhead so we've got toxic materials we've got fire and we've got the possibility of rapid decompression. So it is as bad as it gets. Cut off from mankind. You know, that that impulse to call 911 doesn't work. Uh, get the heck out of here is actually uh, a thought I had. that was a good thought, but we're cut off from our rescue vehicle by that huge flame. And you know, and a lot of people have been in tight situations you know at that point, you're telling yourself, you either stay calm or I'm dead. So the the alarms are gone, the... the Cautional warning panels lit up like a Christmas tree. Fire warning lights, smoke warning lights, low voltage lights. Look down the length of the module. That flame has got some intensity. Uh, within 30 seconds, again, can't see the five fingers in front of your face. Headed for a respirator. Starting to feel as if I'm sort of, had swung maybe 50 meters underwater. little fuzzy peripheral vision, needing oxygen. I locate the respirator. Full rubber mask over my head. I activate the oxygen canister. Uh, Breathe in and I get nothing. Uh, I check the lever again. It's set correctly. I breathe in again Mask just collapses around my face got a failed respirator Uh, Yank that off my head and I'll tell you next uh, 60 seconds or so of my life is just frame by frame split second by split second inside my head and I think it'll be there forever you know, feeling way way along that bulkhead trying to locate a second respirator that, to be honest with you, I wasn't sure was there. Knew where the first one was, not sure about the second one. And as I'm methodically moving on the wall, the brain is doing, you know, two tracks going on, and one I'm thinking about um, people back home because we're all human, relationships matter, and I just yell it out. I say goodbye, Catherine, to my wife. I said, uh, looks like I won't be making it back. Uh, take care of John, take care of the baby-to-be uh really sorry you know i love you a lot i'll be watching over you uh and then i sort of look around i say wow what a strange place to die you know i'm 250 miles above the earth myself two russians smoke everywhere things floating you know weird place to die jerry uh, then i have sort of an acceptance of that i say you know i guess this was like for all of us just marching along all of a sudden it's your last breath uh just wish it weren't so soon in my life um and next i'll tell you a really bad pain of regret and the regret wasn't because i was leaving this world it was because i was leaving my boy behind without letting him know what i thought about him and i told myself you know you should have written something down you should have told him you know why you're up here why you're sacrificing what you're sacrificing uh, what you hope for him in his life you know if nothing else little note dear john love you dad you know you get that bad pain of regret uh, At that point, the world is really closing in, sort of whirling around, tunnel-ish. And um, I finally locate that respirator, yank it over my head, activate, say, God help me. I breathe in, and I get oxygen. And I hyperventilate for the next 30 seconds, and then I scream out, we're going to get that fire out. I'm going to see my boy again, going to do everything right. Uh, We head for the fire, exhaust one fire extinguisher, exhaust a second fire extinguisher, a third fire extinguisher, essentially uh could not get that fire out it had built-in oxygen built-in fuel a lot of intensity all we had is a water-based fire extinguisher when you think about a closed ecosystem you know just like planet earth on a bigger scale uh whatever we spray into the air i'd be breathing for the next four months so water-based best we had was not going to touch that flame we changed our strategy hosed the far bulkhead down so we didn't get secondary fires um I'm in for the fourth fire extinguisher about 14 minutes into the fire, and Vasily screams out, you know, Jerry fires out. Uh, big sigh of relief, uh, but only for a second. Then the doctor and me takes over, and I say, we are still in an unbreathable atmosphere, and the only thing keeping us alive is this respirator and the oxygen that we have. Uh, so we go to a distant module, tell everyone slow your metabolic rate, make every breath count, kind of like scuba diving, where you're low on oxygen, you better you know, not move, not use muscles, do whatever you can to get as much out of that oxygen as you can. Uh, pulled out tracheostomy tubes, laryngoscopes, scalpel, hold down straps, ready to intubate somebody if I have to, if they go into respiratory failure. And then we just sort of waited out. And then we spent about 24 hours treating the burns, doing blood oxygen levels, listening to the lungs, assessing the damage, getting things stable. You know, I went to bed, used to sleep on a wall, Velcro around me, closed my eyes. And just like on any other great adventure, when you do something tough and you're done with it, it's done. you leave it in the past. And I slept like a baby.
0: A remarkable story. Jerry believes that the only reason he and his team survived that day is because they remained calm, focused. And that was a key to taking control of the situation. But one of my guests was at the mercy of an attacker and watched helplessly as he began to bleed to death. Paul de Gelder, a native Australian who turned his life around at the age of 20, joined the military and eventually became a highly skilled clearance diver. Despite being deathly afraid of sharks, it was during one of Paul's training exercises that his worst fear was realized. So we're going to go right back into that
3: moment. It was in a place in Sydney Harbour where we had worked for decades. I've personally done jobs there for years. Um, this is- February 2009. And uh, all all we were doing that day was acting as uh, attack swimmers, pretending to be attack swimmers. And some uh, equipment that the R&D Department of the military had created was trying to track us autonomously. So the goal was they could take it anywhere they wanted, and it would automatically track the movements um, with video and with sonar under the water um, to stop you know, terrorists putting bombs on our ships. And so we were pretending to be the terrorists. And um, I was the second guy in the water. Uh, The the first guy just got out. And we were in a little black inflatable boat we call a Zod or a Zodiac. And I had a black wetsuit on, just a a thin two, three mil uh, and a pair of black fins. And I rolled over the Zod and I was just, I was doing what we call finning. I was on the surface on my back, just kicking my legs, pretty easy day, just Sydney Harbor coming to the end of summer. So it's usually pretty warm. It was pretty overcast and you know temperate that day. And really wasn't thinking too much of the day. Uh, as I always did when I was in the water, I was thinking about sharks uh, because I, I was deathly afraid of sharks. Um, and I was just thinking it was funny because when we get taught to fin when we're going through Navy Diver training, that we always have to do it with our arms crossed against, over our chest. But I like to feel the water. I like to have my hands in by my sides and because I'm not going through training anymore, you know, I'm an actual clearance, so I can do whatever the hell I want. So I'm just swimming along, I've got my hands in the sides and I'm just thinking, if a shark attacked me, where would I be best to have my hands? If I had them down by my side- You were thinking
0: this on the day.
3: Yeah, I was literally terrified of sharks. And being in Sydney Harbour, I I wasn't diving, I didn't have a buddy diver, I'm on the surface, which is where most shark attacks happen. And so this is, for me, a a scary sort of scenario. But as usual, I'm trying to put it to the back of my mind because I have a job to do, but I've got nothing to think about because I don't really have a job. Um, And so I think if I have my hands by my side and a shark grabs me, what's going to happen? And I'm thinking, okay, well, it might grab my arm and my body and pin my arm to my side. And then I, I can only fight off with one hand. And I put my arms across my chest. And I thought, well, if it grabs me with my hands across my chest and it grabs my torso, then it'll get both my arms. And so I thought, okay, probably better by my side. And I, I put my hands down and instantly turned around to make sure that I was still headed in the right direction. And I got this massive whack in my side and it shocked me back to re- what was going on. And I, I didn't really know I didn't expect a shark because it didn't, it didn't hurt. It wasn't like 36 razor blades going into my leg. It was just a, a, a pressure, a very strong pressure. And so I turned around to look down and it actually took me a second to, to process what I was seeing because I'd never seen a dangerous shark before, let alone one that close to my face. And so I looked down and I just see this gigantic gray head And the lips are pulled back i can see these teeth half embedded into my thigh embedded into my wrist one big black eye staring at me and then my survival instincts kick in and i think i've got to fight back and i'm thinking steve owen discovery channel shark week and it just instantly goes go for the eyeball but the shark's got my hand it's hard to describe pain So imagine a bear trap, and we all know how powerful they are, and they've got those big steel spikes. Now imagine a bear trap with two rows of 36 razor blades, and it it slams shut as hard as a bear trap, but it doesn't just stay there. Then it starts grinding against itself like chainsaws on either side of your body until it slices all the way through to meet in the middle. That's that's, That's what it was like, eight seconds of that. No, it's not instantaneous. It's eight seconds of absolute. It's like a saw movie, and 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 through the bone as well. Through through the bones in my hand and through the whole of my hamstring. Um, didn't didn't hit the bone in my leg. It it missed my femoral artery by a couple of millimeters. Uh, so I would have actually died if it had hit that. Um, so I'm you know I'm the pain didn't kick in until it started to shake me. I start I was trying to fight back. I was trying to push it off, and then it, you said you went for the eye. I very- went for the eye, but I couldn't I couldn't reach it because it had me by the back of the leg and i was maybe an inch away my finger was an inch away from its eyeball so i put my hand on its nose and tried to push it off but that just pushed the teeth of the lower jaw deeper into my leg and so i I cocked back to punch it like you know punch in the nose is what everyone tells you but as soon as i started to do that my blood must have drifted into its mouth it must have realized that i could be eaten and that's when it started to shake me so all the power went out of my punch and it was totally ineffective it took me underwater and the pain kicked in instantly and I was in total agony it, it brought me back to the surface I took a quick gasp of air because I thought we were probably going to go back down and we went straight back down and it just kept tearing me to pieces and I was I'm in agony I, I'm totally terrified because this is my my worst nightmare and I'm drowning at the same time my, my lungs are starting to fill with water I'm choking and after about six seconds, I accept the fact that I'm going to die because there is nothing that I can do. You you can't imagine what it's like to have a 600-pound animal made of muscle attached to you in, in an element that is not where you're supposed to be. You can't grab onto anything. You have no purchase. You're not on the ground. You like You're totally weightless. This thing has you at its mercy. And so all I could do was accept that I was going to die. I realized... That I'm not, I remember thinking to myself, I'm not going home today. And so as soon as I actually accepted that, and, and it wasn't like time slowed down. It was like the adrenaline was making my brain work so fast. This is all in nanoseconds. This, my, my mind is thinking of all this stuff. And I think, am I ready to go? And I thought, well, I've lived 10 lives in these 31 years. I've done more than I could ever have perceived. And yeah, you know what? I, I don't mind. I'm okay. I'm gonna, if I'm gonna die, I'm good with it. And so a calm washed over me and I was ready to just die. But the shark removed the hamstring, took my hand off, and it wasn't attached to me anymore. My wetsuit made me positively buoyant, so I popped to the surface and I realized I wasn't dead. The, the, the shark's tail splashed water in my face I saw my safety boat and I thought, shit, I've got to get out of here before it comes back. So I started to swim towards my safety boat. You know, the, all the the, the instinctual um, uh, flight or fight kicked in straight away. I, I wasn't feeling any pain at that point. The adrenaline was overriding that. Plus, I think the shark had ripped through the, oh, like 25 centimeters of my nerve. So I just couldn't even feel my leg. Uh, I didn't know what was wrong with it. I just couldn't feel it. So I started to swim, but my hand's gone. And I just. It was not there. My arm ended at the end of my wetsuit, so the medical training kicked in, and I thinking, okay, I've got to keep that wound above my heart to stem the bleeding. So I'm swimming with one hand and one leg back to the safety boat through a pool of my own blood. The guys said it was so thick they could actually taste it in the air when they were coming to grab me, um, but I didn't even think I was going to make it. I had no I no belief that I was going to make it to that safety boat. I, I knew it was a bull shark. I thought in my head that bull sharks usually swim in packs. I'm bleeding profusely. This shark or another shark is going to come and grab me and I'm going to die. But I just kept swimming anyway, because what else was I going to do? And thankfully the guys in the safety boat got to me first. They, my body was in such a weird angle. They actually thought that I was snapped in half. Um, they grabbed me, one person grabbed me by the upper body, one by the lower body, just in case my body fell to pieces. They pulled me into the boat, laid me flat, and just out of the sheer relief of being safe and not eating anymore, I, I passed out. And then everyone's training kicked in. They all, they all did exactly what was required of them to keep me alive uh, until the paramedics got there. And it was, it was insane, you know? Uh, they, they stimulated my heart to wake me back up because they thought I was going into cardiac arrest. I got my priorities in order and I asked my buddy Tomo to look after my motorcycle. Uh, And then they started tying off tourniquets around my leg, heading towards the pier where my chief was. And he took control. One of the guys had to stick his hand inside my leg and pinch closed an artery just to stop me from bleeding out. Um, So it was a, it was a rough morning for more than just me. Eventually the paramedics turned up, thank God. And they, they, Pumped me full of morphine, um, which was good and bad because I was in, at at that point when the paramedics got there, the pain was incredible. I I was screaming for drugs and then they gave me so much and I was begging for more, but then the pain drifted away, but the morphine had lowered my blood pressure so much and I was lacking a lot of blood already that I started having respiratory problems in the back of the ambulance. And that again, I thought I was going to die because I physically could not breathe. I just didn't have the strength to make, to fill my lungs full of air. So the paramedics had to coach me through that and, and they were incredible. Um, yeah, and, and luckily the hospital wasn't too far away you know, from, from Garden Island at Wollamaloo to St. Vincent's in, in uh, Kings Cross, 10 minutes in good traffic.
0: Unbelievable story.
3: So they, they got me there. And like the surgeon said, he said, once we get a shark attack survivor to the hospital, if they're still alive, generally speaking, we can keep them alive. So that's what happened.
0: Today, Paul works for the Discovery Channel and surprisingly is no longer afraid of sharks. In fact, he puts his life on the line to protect them. Life is full of setbacks that sometimes feel impossible to overcome. Losing a job, a loved one, or even losing yourself and your sense of identity. Some of my guests have faced incredibly challenging setbacks. However, they've managed to persevere and push through. Sarah Rynenson was born with a rare genetic disorder called proximal femoral focal deficiency. Because Sarah's case was extreme, she faced the worst case scenario of having her leg amputated at the age of seven. Despite her adversities, Sarah became the first woman amputee to complete an Ironman and now inspires young kids who are amputees to get out there And not be left on the sidelines.
4: That's also, I feel like it's my job as a a citizen, a good citizen in the world. As a role model. As a role model and to make sure the opportunity is there for somebody else. Every kid who's an amputee should be able to get a running leg if they want a running leg. And so that's where I want to inspire people, but I also want to empower people and equip people to, to find that adaptability in their own life.
0: Gabrielle Reese is a former professional volleyball player, model, and best-selling author. She believes in the face of adversity, you gotta deal with it head on.
1: But certainly if something comes at you that isn't, is a challenge, it's coming. So deal with it. Yeah. And, under, and also try to go, well, why is this happening? What can I get from this? Um, and you can admit the days that it feels overwhelming or hard. And if you need a good cry or if you feel piled on and then what do you want to do because not going anywhere and that
0: is exactly what tandy mawaitwa did when she was faced with tragedy at an early age having grown up in a small town in southern zambia with almost zero wildlife tandy's first introduction to wild animals came from stories that she heard from her mother
5: i had no experience with wildlife up to the point i moved here i mean my mom would tell these really vivid stories about the wildlife around her village. Uh, Some of it was quite exaggerated, you know, she would maybe she she wanted to spice things up a little bit. She would tell us that, you know, elephants are the size of a house and and everything. But So those stories were quite interesting and I, I think they sparked my interest and fascination with wildlife and then the documentaries did an amazing job of putting like, you know, picture to those, those stories.
0: Tandy was 12 when she finally got to see wildlife in person. But sadly, it was because of a tragedy. And then the way that you experienced it, unfortunately, came from a tragic event in your life. Yeah. When you were 12?
5: Yeah, it was it was pretty uh, sad. I'd lost my parents at that point, and so my uncle was like, "Oh, I can I can take you all in, no problem. And that is how we ended up here.
0: So you, you, you must think a lot about your mum introducing you to wildlife, mm, mm. and did do you do you ever think, wow, what would she think of my my life now? And and what considering what it is you do now for a living?
5: I think she'd be uh, quite proud, uh, given the fact that um, I'm doing work with a lot of people to try and maintain, you know, the, the amazing biodiversity that exists here.
0: Things seemed to be turning around for Tandi when she was accepted into one of the most prestigious schools in northern Zambia. But getting through her schoolwork proved to be extremely challenging. Was
5: that and
0: overwhelming for it you? It was
5: overwhelming. Yeah, there was plenty of plenty of other smart people and yeah, it got overwhelming at some point. I almost like, you know, was like, Okay, let me just repeat a grade Then maybe I can catch up properly. Um, but then, yeah, somebody encouraged me, a classmate of mine, who was like, "Oh yeah, I can, I can teach you math. Don't, don't cry, don't worry." Because I was actually crying in a corner. I was like, "Oh my God, this is too hard. I can't <laughs> do it." <laughs> and you know, she she gave me that extra push. And so, and then added to that, I needed to you know keep myself awake a lot at night just to catch up and all the material. And it involved um, actually getting a bucket of cold water in June. June is like our winter period. Yeah. Here just stand in that, because it will keep you awake. It's highly, Uh, you know, uh, a lot of people would drink coffee to stay awake, so it's kinda like that, but it's, uh, the more uncomfortable you are, I think the more likely you are just to to fall asleep. Well,
0: it worked, because your teacher told me that you got eight distinctions Mm. (laughs) in eight subjects. Tandy has dedicated her life to protecting animals and is now a senior wildlife biologist with the Zambian Carnivore Program, with a mission to ensure the survival of the big cats for generations to come, engaging those everywhere to read beyond the headlines and engage with an issue. Leland Melvin has also persevered through one setback after another, epitomizing what it means to not let adversity define the outcome of one's life. Leland is a man of many remarkable achievements. Perhaps the only former NFL football player turned NASA astronaut, but his life has been far from easy. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself in terms of the challenges
6: you've faced in life? I mean, it it, it broadens your tolerance for whether it's pain or whether it's adversity. You get this increased bandwidth hmm. of capacity to deal with stuff. And when I was five years old, I was I was uh, raped by some some people in my in my neighborhood, and. You know, most people will go to their parents and tell them what happened, but I could not tell my dad because my dad would have killed those guys. Mm. And so I was holding that in so that I would protect my family. And, you know, people say, well, how did you deal with it? And I said, I, I would never let those guys keep me from rising. I continued to thrive. I tried to, you know, do the best that I could in sports and academics and everything just to... To be the best that I could and i and I didn't share anything about that until I wrote my book after my my dad had passed because I still thought you didn't when, want to hurt him, no, I didn't want to be without a father, yeah, because he and I had friends without without dads, and that so, was really that was
0: i mean so many young men don't have their fathers, oh yeah, yeah and you yeah. figured
6: that out as such a young because age. he would he would have i mean you know he taught me everything, and I was kind of his light you know and I knew that he would have probably killed them and he would have been in jail. I mean, and now he would have been gone from the family. So I just said, nope, I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to do what I have to do. And like I said, it's an incredible choice to make as a as a young boy. Yeah,
0: really. As Leland grew up, he realized he had a natural talent for playing football and eventually went on to receive a scholarship to play football at the University of Richmond, where he studied chemistry. And later, he headed to the NFL as a professional athlete where life threw him yet another curveball.
6: Um, I graduated from Richmond in chemistry, went to Detroit, um, was there, pulled a hamstring in training camp. And then I came home, uh, Dallas signed me for the next season of the Cowboys. And so then I started graduate school at University of Virginia. Dallas? Wow. Dallas Cowboys, yeah. yeah. And then I, when I moved to Dallas, I'm still taking courses, so. Catching footballs by day for America's team at night. I'm watching material science engineering VHS video cassette <laughs> recorded tapes. I, and
0: I, I'm taking it. It would be hard to be dating and to have a
6: social life with this kind of lifestyle. A little crazy, but um, but then I my football career ended when Danny White, the quarterback at the time, was throwing and threw me a pass that I went after and I pulled my leg again.
0: Faced with a career-ending injury, he turned to his other passion, chemistry applying and then being accepted to be a research scientist at NASA. The idea of being an astronaut never occurred to him until a friend at NASA felt that he had the right stuff and then encouraged him to give it a go. Out of 2,500 applicants, Leland received one of only 25 spots in the program. And it was during a routine training exercise, Leland endured yet another career-ending blow.
6: I'm training to do spacewalks and to do that we are submerged into a 5 million gallon pool that has a space station and a space shuttle underneath. And I have my suit on, I'm going, I'm being lowered into the water about 20 feet. And I tell the test director that the little styrofoam block that costs about $2 is missing from my helmet. That styrofoam block is called a Valsalva pad, which allows you to press your nose against it to clear your ears, because obviously you can't, you reach, can't your, reach in right right pinch. with this suit on. And I'm the kind of guy when I dive and when I do all my stuff I I need to clear. I'm I'm that kind of person. So we get down to 20 feet and from that point on I tell the test director to turn the volume up in the headset because I hear nothing but like garbled voices. And after that I hear nothing but static. And so they take me out of the pool. They pop my helmet off. The doctor starts walking towards me. And he's speaking to me but I can't hear anything he's saying. So I think he's I'm like, why are you playing with me? This is kind of a serious thing, you know. And he gets closer to me and he touches my right ear and he pulls his finger back and a river of blood just streams down the side of my face. I am completely deaf. And no one knew what had happened. They rushed me to the hospital. The surgeons, ear, nose, and throat uh, specialist from Houston Medical Center, he operated, went in, looked at my oval and circular windows, couldn't find anything wrong. And when I woke up from the anesthesia, I saw three doctors looking at me with this face of despair. And they said, we don't know what happened to you. Well, they didn't say that, they actually wrote it on the legal pad. Because you could I couldn't not hear. hear. And you're so excited from going from the NFL
0: to NASA, and now you're faced with yet another challenge,
6: another right. big challenge, right. life-changing challenge. Right, right. I mean, I, I'm in the hospital, and I have, uh, you know, coming out of this surgery, all my friends are around me. People are writing me these notes and don't give up. Believe you know, blah blah blah, and I can't hear a bomb drop. You know, I'm 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 laying there, and about three weeks later, my hearing starts to slowly come back in my right ear. I'm completely deaf in this ear, pretty much. I get some low frequency, but um, I go home. I'm I'm recovering. My brain is now starting to rewire itself to hear for this right ear, and I feel nothing but ice picks going through the side of my head. when The, that, the pain, is that from bad? The pain from the air conditioner handlers in Houston kicking on every five minutes because it's always hot in Houston, right? Yeah. And so I'm laying in bed with earplugs and noise-canceling headsets to block out this pain. I think that was one of the things that gave me a much higher threshold for pain because when your brain is like just getting slammed with noise... Well, just your the idea that you're talking about what it would feel like to be poked in the ear with and, an ice pick... Not in the ear, in the brain. In the brain, it's like going through my head. Oh. And I just feel this sharp pain, and eventually that subsides, and eventually I get this hearing back, and I start driving and start doing things and getting reincorporated back into society. But that was a that was a very painful process. I'm just trying to think of what those
0: three weeks were like, waiting that out, because th- at that point
6: you've got no you've got no guarantee that. Anything is coming back. Did well, you they, well, they told me that I would never fly, first of all. I mean, they kind of... So, wrote, okay. You're uh, not going to fly. So what am I going to do as a, a partially deaf astronaut? What is going to be my function? What is going to be my role? What will my job function, you know? And, and uh, I went to work in education at NASA, NASA headquarters, and that's when the Columbia accident happened. And I had to go and console the parents. David Brown, his parents, uh, lived near Washington, D.C., and to try to give them some hope. And his father said to me, my son is gone. There is nothing you can do to bring him back, but the biggest tragedy would be if we don't continue to fly in space to honor their legacy. Whoa. And I'm not flying because I'm medically disqualified. Yeah. And so we fly to the different memorial services around the country. and The chief of all the flight surgeons is sitting beside me on every takeoff and landing. And he's taking notes. And he watches me clear my ears because now I can clear my ears. And he signs me a waiver to fly in space.
0: On February 7th, 2008, Leland did just that as he flew into space on the 24th shuttle mission to visit the International Space Station. It's an incredible story of perseverance and determination. Something that Leland said and that he learned from visiting space that really has stuck with me is that when you're up there, you don't see any borders and you realize how truly connected we all are on this planet that we need to really take care of this planet. And since the Bucket Podcast has begun, I've been fortunate enough to meet three astronauts, and they all said the same thing. When I hear their stories, they all say that they have this perspective on life. Like Mae Jemison. Now, Mae Jemison is the very definition of a maverick. She was the first African-American woman to go into space when she went into orbit around the space shuttle Endeavour on September the 12th, 1992. For May, her desire to become an astronaut didn't come from wanting to be the first woman of color in space, it was just simply that she had this passion to be an astronaut, period. To May, she had decided that she wasn't gonna let anything get in her way. No one and no how was she not going to go into space.
1: And I would tell people that I assume I'd go into space and I had teachers who believed me, but during that time there were no women astronauts in the United States. Valentina Tershkova had gone up in Russia. Yeah, and was, people, that was
0: quite early on, too. 63. 63. My.
1: 63. Which is, what,
0: 20 years before the first...
1: Sally Ride, yeah. Wow. Yeah. So so I knew that as a little girl. Yeah. But even if I didn't know it, I was, I was this adamant women's liver as a little girl, right? Yeah. Like a seven, eight-year-old going around telling people, uh-uh, no, this is the way it is. But... When people tried to tell me that there were reasons why women didn't go into space, and even my dad or somebody might try to tell me the things, I was just like, y'all wrong. (laughs) (laughs) It's just not true. (laughs) And so I just didn't believe it. The one thing I always talk about is to don't just look at the obstacle. So sometimes we get stuck looking at the obstacle and trying to make it go away. I always say, What is it that you want? And then figure out how to get that. That obstacle might, that might have to hang out by itself, but I'm going to go over here on this other side, right? I may have to do this a little bit differently, but I'm going to still get what I want. I used to keep the word purpose in front of my desk at NASA so that I knew why was I there? I was there because I wanted to go into space. That's the reason I was there. So whatever happens, what was my purpose? I wanted to go into space. What do I need to do to make sure that I go into space?
0: The idea of not necessarily facing obstacles head on, but finding a way to move past them is shared by National Geographic Explorer, engineer and technologist, Albert Lin. He's been described as a 21st century Indiana Jones. Albert and his team were on a mission to uncover the tomb of Genghis Khan, no easy task, as the tomb was believed to be located in a sacred place in Mongolia, a highly restricted, no-go zone. (laughs) All right, so you get there, there's resistance. People are thinking, hey, Albert Lin, man who wants to ride away on a horse into the sunset, this is great that you're here, but we don't necessarily want you to go into this sacred place. It's it's special to us, Mm -hmm. and who are you to be here doing this? So how do you then get to... The point of being able to get, get their trust, and get that access. How does that happen? You know, it comes down to just And does it a few involve moments? alcohol? <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
4: definitely. There's lots of bottles of vodka. No, there is, uh, there's definitely one particular moment that I can think of where it, it was a turning point. Okay. Um, you know, there's many of those little moments look, that lined up to make it possible. I finally get this first little grant uh, from Nat Geo. Uh, it was a uh, dream come true. A dream true. come true. And and I and I'm I'm not vetted at all, basically, right? Not, I mean, not by I am vetted by Nat Geo as this academic, but in Mongolia, nobody'd ever heard of me, and and I'm some young kid that came out of the West to, with a Chinese last name to do this thing, and they're like, what? the? And there was this one moment where you know, and it was just such a shit show getting into the country because everybody's flights were all changed, messed up, and in the middle of that. As we're about to land, I'm in a layover, and I get this message from my, who's supposedly going to be my main collaborator out there, this really sort of veteran academic, who says that uh, the whole thing's off, uh, that I, my budget for the expedition was 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 almost uh, insulting to the country, uh, that that this to to launch a search of this magnitude for something this important with this ragtag team of of young, unvetted scientists with with uh, you know, a, a pretty small discretionary budget was just unacceptable. Go home. And I'm landing. And I've just given a year of my life, my first grant ever, everything's on this moment. And and I've in three hours I'll show up in the Capitol with no collaboration. And and not only that, he was supposed to set us up with our house and everything else and pick us up and like get us all there. Nothing. Again, nothing. So I land and I'm just on my own. Like I'm, I'm just a tourist in the country with nothing. What is going to happen? So finally, I, I, quickly, I scramble and I get a hotel room. And I have, I, I should, I sort of get the other team back to like the, the, as they're all landing one by one into this hotel room, and we start having these little incremental meetings where we're opening up the door again. We're saying this, you know, we're here. You said we we're going to collaborate. Let's talk. And the first couple of meetings, I mean, it was to the point in which they were we're sort of sitting there having tea with this minister of. Culture or something like this, and halfway through, he'd stand up, take his cup of tea, and throw it on the ground, and walk out and slam the door. I mean, that's how bad it was. It was that's, not going to happen. It's pretty bad, would... yeah. It was. It was yeah. like all this, all this time, all this moment, all this, all this hype. I put everybody's belief in me, and now this is that moment. Uh, and I remember at that exact moment, the the feeling of rejection and and failure. You know, like this, just sort of like gut wrenching feeling of how could I have gotten this close and then failed? And, and we went out to the, to the hotel and we sit down for a beer. And I was amongst my friends, you know, my closest friends uh, who had just believed in me for a year. And we literally had this conversation where we sat there and we said, you know what? We just have to will this thing into reality. We're just going to take everything negative that comes out of the next meeting And just judo move, like just judo move our way around it, and throw something positive in response. Like we won't even acknowledge what they say if it's negative. We just be like, "Oh, we're
0: gonna ignore the cups being smashed on the ground (laughs) and just be positive." Move, move, yeah. Like,
4: wow, that that, now you can clean the floors. Yeah. (laughs) And we have this chance to do this thing that's gonna change the world, that's gonna that's gonna change our understanding of this incredibly important culture that's part of our our collective history. And boom, 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 and from that exact moment forward it was like the entire the entire momentum just shifted it was just that conversation it was like okay this is our strategy now instead of confronting the negative with a response to the negative we'll just judo move it move on be positive that's it just like just just move it just go through it just get past it just go through it. every meeting one after the other boom get past boom move through move through move through and then within 4 days later were packing these massive military trucks provided by the Mongolian government to go into the center of this forbidden precinct that hadn't been traveled to for 800 years by decree of Genghis Khan himself, that people like Marco Polo had written about in their legacy stories. This place that nobody could get access to, we were going. Incredible.
0: Yet after all they went through to get to this moment, they found themselves in an incredibly dangerous situation. A lightning storm had broken out. All around Albin and his team, these huge trees were being uprooted and they were
4: falling down around them. You know, in the midst of storms, the worst torrential storms in 40 years, they say, that are just coming through and flooding these valleys. And then we're, and we're driving these huge trucks up through these rivers that are covered in quicksand. And like, you know, there's there's these swollen, swollen rivers that we have to cross with these huge trucks and all these horses. And the trucks get stuck over and over and over again. So we go and get all these horses and we have to scout ahead. And we finally make our way up to the top of this peak, snow-capped peak. And at that moment, the storm comes whipping through, sending us down inside of this mountain, and we're just sort of scrambling to get down there after surveying this thing. And these trees are toppling down, boom, boom, and we get down, and it's like, ah! And I'm the last one down, because I'm, I believe it that, like, I'm sort of really into these like, sort of, Captains' novels. I, used yeah. <laughs> I was obsessed with. Go like down that. with your ship. <laughs> yeah, so I'm the last <laughs> one down. I'm like, everybody, good job, good You're holding to the wheel yeah. on the Titanic. It's like, yeah. I'm gonna and be I'm, here, and I'm getting end. down the side of this uh, this mountain to the middle plateau uh, in in this storm, and, and I hear over the radio that somebody had seen my buddy Luke said he saw like four or five trees fall down in this one area. The next day, we come up. Uh, we're hiking up. I'm not the first one up somebody else is up, and I get this to the plateau and all these trees are sort of there, and my really close friend and our geologist who grew up in the mountains of Colorado picking little lost arrowheads with his father um he's standing behind one of the, these roots of these trees that've been kicked up and uh and he just he, he looks like, like he's seen a ghost you know and he, and he's just out out get over here, get over here, and he's whispering like what is it? And, and as if the trees were just sort of, like you imagine a big root tree, and he's just poking his head out the side, and he's looking at me. And he just goes like this, he just goes. And in his hand is this thing. He's just holding this thing. A, I'm from across the forest. I'm like, what, what is that? I run across. I come up to him. He hands me this thing. I'm staring at it. It's it's like this medallion with a lion's face staring at me, right back at me. This ancient thing turned up in the roots of these trees. And look at the roots of these trees and there's these bricks all stuck in the roots of these trees, mangled in the roots of these trees and this on the side of this sacred mountain in the middle of this forbidden precinct. Wow. And we start looking around and from one to the next, and we realize that we're we're covered in this all this rubble. It just got kicked up. So we start walking from tree root to tree root to look. And as we're walking, our feet are literally crunching underneath us. So we pick up the grass, and we just look under the grass. we're standing on a roof. Wow. An ancient roof. After three more years of
0: surveying the area, the findings are now in the hands of the Mongolian government. Albert says that they cannot conclusively say if it is the tomb or not. They didn't find any DNA or clear signs saying that this was the tomb of Genghis Khan. But for Albert, he does believe it is. And while reflecting on his own journey, Albert had some words of wisdom for others who wished to swerve off the predictable road.
4: That you really do have the power to imagine any reality you want. Like I could be sitting here looking at this situation and see it in one way, or I could see it in another way. And it could be the exact same situation but one could be a very good thing and one could be a very bad thing. And so you have the, you have a choice in how you see every situation and Mm -hmm. how you see a situation is actually incredibly important to how that situation actually unfolds. The second thing is, is that I think a lot of people focus on their plan B before they focus on their plan A. That's really interesting. It's like they, they, they do all the things they need to do to have the right safety net for when they're going to take their big risk. But they never actually take their big risk. You got to commit. You got to burn your ships at the banks of Veracruz. You know, it's like you've got to go all in. Yeah. Uh, And and I think that what what I found is that my greatest moments in life are those in which I went all in, even if it was incredibly uncomfortable and at at extremely high risk. Uh, And and you know, I mean, for those of you out there who 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 don't. Have a ton of responsibilities yet. You're, ne- you're never going to be more free than you are right now. So you might as well go for it, right? Uh, but at the same time, there's never a moment where you shouldn't just go for it. You should always bet on yourself, basically, and 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 bet on and bet on your plan A. I think being the first
0: person to do something or to do something in the way that has never been done before takes risk and courage. It takes saying bucket and doing things your own way. And I just love this quote from Australian-born director Roger Donaldson. That,
3: I, that nobody else was doing it, so why couldn't I? Yeah. and I knew But you I, have to have that edge, yeah, don't no, you think? No, I, mean, I, you have I, to... I mean, and I was prepared to put my own money into these projects. and I Which think is the of...
0: biggest no-no ever,
3: Roger, no, right? No, like everybody everybody tells you, don't ever never do spend that. spend your own money on, a, on your own movie. Right. But for me, it did work out well, because I wouldn't have made these films unless that's what happened, you know?
0: We've had many guests who have blazed their own trail. Peggy Okai was the only female member of the original Zephyr competition team, also known as the Z-Boys. She was also featured in the critically acclaimed film Dogtown. If you haven't seen it, see it. Dogtown and the Z-Boys. Peggy and the rest of the Z-Boys changed the entire skating community with their unconventional surf-like style, creating a culture of skateboarding that is still well-known today.
1: It was just this energy that, that was just... This ever expanding sort of energy. We we would climb over the fence and get into the school and start skating the bank, and we'd all just take our runs. We'd take our turns and and watch each other and just keep going and going. And and that's where when people asked me about, well, how did you feel as the only girl on the team? Did you feel isolated or something? And I'd say no, because we were just so focused on 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 the energy that was generated, the, that whole excitement and, and pushing each other just by doing just doing our own thing pushing ourselves
0: Laird Hamilton has always done his own thing he's a true maverick in the world of water sports regarded arguably as the world's greatest surfer even though he doesn't compete absolutely i think what what i love about you is 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 this this true passion for what you do meaning you don't feel the need to have to have a trophy
7: or to be acknowledged as officially acknowledged as a uh, great. I didn't like to be told what to do. Yeah. I've always been resistant about being told what to do. Go in, come, go in. We'll tell you when to go out. Go out. When you come in, we'll tell you how you did. Like that, these are bad scenarios. Like I don't, I'm, I don't take, I, I don't, I'm not good with. With uh, rules? With rules. Yeah. Very not good with rules. I, would it be fair to say you make up your own? Very, yeah. Oh, very yeah. not good yeah, yeah, with yeah, yeah. rules. Well, I you know like what, But I, but I, <laughs> but I, listen, I, but I'm governed by the rules of gravity. Yeah. I'm governed by the rules of the universe. Like, yeah. I, don't, I don't need to make up rules. I'm, I'm governed by the rules of, of nature. They, they take care of stuff. There's no air under the water. That's a rule. And you know what? I'm not going to change that rule ever, Yeah. right? Yeah. When I fall off this building, the ground is hard. I'm not going to change that. I mean, I can put wings on, <laughs> but if the wings break, I'm, I hit the ground. It's still, you know, so, I mean, I, I, you know, these are some things that are like, these are, these are, these aren't made up. These are like... These are things that we can learn the hard way. And they'll be consistent. I mean, listen, I, 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 you know, we were, we were, the other day we were talking about, you know, when I was young, uh, I lived around uh, a lot of, you know, incredible Hawaiian people. And, you know, one of the old men uh, in his dialect would always say to me, you, you know, boy, you can't eat your surfboard. Because I'd go surfing every day. He'd come back and he'd be like, hey, boy, you cannot eat your surfboard. And I'd be like, mean, <laughs> he meant like, you can't eat that thing. Like it, you're not farming, right. you're not fishing, you're not hunting, yeah. you're not working, you're not making money. You're, you cannot, hey boy, you cannot make, you cannot eat your surfboard, you know, like, and so uh, in a way I've been able to eat my surfboard. Yeah. So, you know, <laughs> I think I've gone against, you know, I've gone you against all those things, yeah. but I've, I, and I've gone against a lot of that because I was already different. Yet, despite
0: not participating in professional competitions, Laird is always competing with himself and continuously striving to do better, no matter how much he accomplishes. And believe me, that's a lot. I'm just wondering, Laird, you know, you're 54. You said life is fast. When you're on that wave and you're at your peak physical condition, there may be, you know, there's certain moments in your career where you know that you are at your peak. Yep. Physically, mentally. The idea of Laird Hamilton getting older, I'm just wondering how that gets processed.
7: Well, there's a great quote that I really, that I appreciate. And it says, never let your memories be bigger than your dreams. And so as long as my dreams are bigger than anything that I've done, and they are. Just
0: say that again, because I like that. (laughs) Never let your memories
7: be bigger than than your than your dreams.
0: So that's about always looking forward, right? Always. Will you still be? Will you still be wanting to go out and invent things when you're 74? Always. So
7: when, it's, when, it, when will, I'm not, it's done. So I, I, Then I you. lose the whole purpose while I'm here. I might as well, you know, and, and who knows what that looks like. But the fact is, is that every season I'm able to have a feeling of accomplishment and do something I haven't done.
0: Laird Hamilton, who co-invented the now widely popular toe and surfing, is now credited with successfully riding the heaviest wave ever, and continues to push himself further and further. Who knows what he'll dream up next. But whatever it is, I can tell you he will be doing it his own way. Just like Sal Masekela, who refuses to be anything but himself and is now regarded as the voice of extreme sports. Sal has covered everything from NBC's Red Bull Signature Series to ESPN's Summer and Winter Extreme Games. But growing up, Sal never expected that his life would revolve around sports like expression. skateboarding. What drew you to, you mentioned skateboarding, what drew drew you to that culture? What was it about that culture that made you want to be a part of it?
8: When I moved to um, New England from New York, I was around 14 years old. Mm-hmm. And it was a real culture shock. I grew up in New York City. I grew up in a really multicultural environment inspired by the arts and I suddenly moved to a very working class New England community um, where there weren't really anybody there wasn't really anybody who looked like me so diversity wasn't really a thing and I experienced sort of very interesting layers of ignorance based on like lack of knowledge and then just sort of like weird racism and in a school that where I kind of felt like a, a Martian at times, it was ironically the skateboarders, the four or five super punk rock skateboarders who had like, you know, a thousand safety pins in their pants and mohawks and dressed weird who were the most embracing to me. They were the kids who made me feel like I'd hang out with them. And this one kid, Scott Forbes, one day. Um, asked me if I wanted to learn how to skateboard. And I was like, yeah. And he gave me a skateboard and I would, I didn't dress like them, but we loved the skateboarding thing and they give me magazines and I fell in love with skateboarding. And so that's how I first got skateboarding was as like this way of acceptance into this town where I didn't really know how to fit in.
0: Towards the end of his high school, Sal and his family moved to Southern California where he continued skateboarding and then discovered surfing. This is when he really became more aware of the discrimination that he faced, not only from his community, but even some of his friends. There's so many people that do experience prejudice, and there's so many people who are feeling like they're fighting and that they're different. So what, did you, what, what have you learned? What are some lessons that you've learned that you could share to other 16-year-old kids who are feeling like on the outer?
8: I went through a period when I first moved to California where... I'd be quiet when people would make racist jokes around me. It was easier. It felt horrible. I'd be dying inside. But I went through a period, probably for like a year, where I just, I just wanted to fit in. And it hurt so much. And I remember the day that I finally said no more. Someone had made a joke about like it was late at night and i was one of the last guys out and they'd sent something to the effect of like we were looking for you to smile so we could see you oh boy and i just remember just barking just being like you can't talk to me like that and here's why and then i just read them out a laundry list of all the racist shit that they said or did every day and then that wasn't going to stand anymore And then they would be like, but you know, we're not trying to be, but you are. And from now on, every time, I'm gonna let you know. I know you guys don't dislike me. I know that you're uncomfortable because you don't know anything about me and you haven't chosen to like wanna know. So this is how we're gonna talk about it. I mean, there were people who would say to me like, hey man, you know, it's really cool that you surf and you do what we do Cause you know, you're not like a regular black guy. You're more like us. Mm.
0: Changing the mindset of those people sitting in that room can happen in a teachable moment like that one time. time. This is a thing that takes years. Sal continued to surf, skate, and snowboard. Instead of going to college, he worked every job under the sun, including an internship at a skate magazine, answering phones. Sal's big personality quickly made him well known in the extreme sports community. When he finally got his big break as a sideline reporter for MTV, he broke all the rules for what was expected from a conventional on-air talent. Sal didn't wanna just fit in. He wanted to do things the way that Sal could only do them. Is that advice, Sal, that you would give to young people? Just like the the idea that be yourself, be true to yourself, blaze your own trail, don't, like those guys, those surf guys that kind of implied that now you were fitting in with their world and you kind of very quickly made it known that, no, 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 no. I'm Sal Masacala and I am my own person. Is that something that you would say to young people?
8: I would say people always ask me, the number one question that I get in my DMs or emails or that people say on my site is, how can I do what I love? Yeah. And the number one thing I say is, be yourself. People always ask me how to be on camera. I'm like, you, be yourself. you gotta be yourself.
0: And, and bring whatever it is that's unique about you, you. to it. And, and I think that's... no one
8: has what you have. Right. Don't and that's to, what you have to sell. That's it, that's it. And that's scary. Yeah. Because you gotta believe that. And it took me a very long time to get to that place. And then even learning the dance at that corporate level, once it was like, you can't be some, some rodeo clown out with the athletes at night and then try to be this guy, like ESPN. At a certain point, they were like, We'll fire your ass. Mm-hmm. Like, yes, you're. So you have to work out where the parameters are. I had to learn how to become a professional. Yeah. That took years. Um, <laughs> but fortunately, I'm still learning, actually. But fortunately, I, I think I had a skill set that allowed me to get away with murder in the beginning. Yeah. And then once I learned how to capitalize on the natural skill set and actually become a professional. That's when it became fun because then it was like, okay, every time I come and do this, I have an opportunity to be better.
0: The goal of the Bucket with Phil Cogan podcast is to inspire you to get the most out of life. It's a chance to connect with innovators, entrepreneurs, and mavericks. Those who prove that making bold choices, ditching the excuses, and refusing to take no for an answer will allow you to realize your biggest dreams, as in... Ticket before you kick it. I want to end part one of this two-part best of Bucket with Phil Kogan podcast with some great advice that came from Sal Masekela. What do you say to people to avoid getting put in that box?
8: Um, To wake up every day and know that there is no box. To, To really believe that, that you don't have a box, that you're not limited by the manner in which society might look at your you know, your dimensions mm-hmm. of who you are and say, okay, you need to be here and this is, the, this is the place that you exist. Know that you're able to be like, thank you, I enjoy this place. I'm also going to walk across the street and see what it feels like to be over there because I like what's happening there. You can
0: watch this podcast online at philcogan.com and let me know what's on your bucket list. You never know, you might be my next guest. Don't forget,
7: ticket before you kick it.